welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is a special to mark International Women's Day 2022, we're bringing you three exclusive interviews with three female changemakers in the energy industry, all of them playing a key role in driving the transition to net zero and a more inclusive world. They are Cordy O'Hara, the president of National Grid Ventures, Christina Rabicate, founder of Papaya, and Juliet Davenport, founder of Good Energy Group. Welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this special edition to celebrate International Women's Day 2022. I'm ED's Senior Reporter and Podcast Secretary Sarah George and I'm happy to be joined in the podcast studio today by a new face for you that are listening um, and someone that's definitely not a new face for me, someone that I sit next to in the office fairly regularly um, and that is Ruth Williams. Hi Ruth. Hi Sarah. Um, Ruth is the water correspondent for our sister title Utility Week, meaning that she has a much better understanding of the state of diversity inclusion in the utility sectors than I do, um, hence my wanting to get her involved. So she's here and Luke and Matt, our content director and editor, have been hereby banned from this episode. <laughs> um, so a big welcome to to you, Ruth. How, how are you? And I understand this is your podcast. Uh, this is my very first podcast, so uh, please be kind. I will. I don't bite. And for the benefit of our readers, because most people that are listening are probably ED fans, it would be great to hear a little bit more about Utility Week and, and your role there. Um, sure. Well, Utility Week provides um, daily news, insights and analysis into everything going on in the wonderful worlds of uh, energy and water utilities. Um, so this ranges from um, policy and regulation, anything relating to the sectors, um, company news, um, environmental issues. Obviously, like on ED, one of the biggest uh, biggest stories that we're going to be covering for a very long time is uh, how the energy and water sectors will achieve uh, net zero. Mm-hmm. Of course, and lots of innovation content on there as well. So much innovation content. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time out from that to join me at what's a busy time in the calendar for both of our brands. Um, And as I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, we have three interviews with three female leaders in the energy industry to bring you for this episode. Um, ED is a pan-industry resource, so of course some of the industries we work with will have made more progress on gender parity than others. Um, So I'm just going to recap briefly on the latest CR and sustainability salary survey that came out in 2020. It found that 45% of in-house directors of CSR or sustainability are women, which is pretty good. Um, And that proportion is 38% for in-house managers and falls to 30% for in-house advisors and analysts. Um, And for those working freelance or for a consultancy, the proportions for all of those roles were a little higher. So in general, CR sustainability doing pretty well on this in some ways. But for the energy sector specifically, um, and especially at leadership level, the gender parity simply is not good at all. Um, And these are some stats from PwC and Powerful Women. They found that four in 10 UK energy companies do not have any women on their board at all still. And when you count the whole sector, just 21% of board seats in the UK energy sector are occupied by women. 
and for board seats at executive level that drops to 13 percent so yeah. it's not it's not a pretty picture it's really not and sadly these figures actually represent a significant increase on the proportions recorded um, in that same study in 2018 so that's why we're having the energy focus uh, today um, and where better to start and to hopefully get some energy of the motivation kind than with an interview with a woman in energy who I'm sure most of you will have heard of um, and who I know that both ED and Utility Week have met multiple times throughout the years and that is Juliet Davenport. Juliet is the founder of Good Energy which when it was launched more than 20 years ago was one of the UK's only suppliers of 100% renewable electricity. And in founding Good Energy, Juliet became the UK's first CEO of an energy company that also happened to be a woman. She stepped down as company CEO last year and has since co-launched Atrato. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and this is an on-site renewable energy investment trust. Atrato is officially the first London-listed company with an all-female board. In this interview with Juliet, we explore her decisions for moving on, her tips for women in the energy sector and her thoughts on whether challenger brands and green brands could be the places where women and other professionals from marginalised backgrounds can thrive. So let's play that interview with Julia in full. Hi Julia, it is a delight to see you again and to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thank you Sarah. Just uh, avoiding the storms. Yes, um, so for those of you that are listening when this is published, we're recording this sort of mid-February and there are definitely some storms going on um, around the UK. I feel like I saw the names come in for people living in the northeast and Scotland um, the other day, but I'm down here in the southeast and it's still very bad. My my pet cat nearly got blown away this morning. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, but at least at least the wind energy generators will be will be happy. <laughs> Let's hope so, yes. Yeah. Great. Well, it's, it's great to be catching up with you, um, Julia, and we're catching up really after uh, what I assume was a super busy um, time for you over the past year or so. Um, so I was get, getting together some notes for this episode and I, I saw that it was actually about this time last year when you formally announced that you were stepping back from the CEO post at Good Energy um, and taking up some, some other projects. So it would be great to hear about how the past year has been with for you with that in mind um and obviously to with cop 26 in mind as well yeah so i guess it, it feels like a very long time ago i mean it, it's always a very difficult time uh, place really to figure out um sort of when you're part of an organization at which point you how long do you stay and when, and when do you leave and i don't think it's an easy decision ever um, but it did feel it did feel like a good time um, in terms of I was I mean, I, I think what's interesting is that the, there are various life cycles in businesses. And when you begin to see the life cycle coming round and around and around in a sense of sort of um, different crises, different issues related to customers, different different pieces, you kind of feel that actually it's time to move on and get more. I'm very curious as a person. I'm fascinated by people, by technology and how business brings those two things together. Um, and I'd already started doing some non-exec director roles um, prior to leaving good. And I just felt that there was more that I could do, more more areas that I could get involved in. And a lot of things I didn't know anything about. So um, to a certain extent, it was really about um, being able to get a wider 
spread, but also um, hopefully then support people who gone who are going through now some of the stages that I've been through when I set up good, um, provide uh, a sort of uh, a helpful um, ear on the board in some cases, or just a helpful ear to, to talk to for CEOs who are trying to set up some of their challenges. Um, yeah, and, and um, for me, that was the beginning of the journey. It's always a little bit frightening when you first step off because you don't know what's coming and you also don't know what you want to take on. So I had some pretty good ideas. I mean, my guiding principle, I had a great chat to somebody else who was on the board with at um, uh, the Energy Institute, and he said to me, well, just make sure you work with people you enjoy. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for me now is to um, have fun with people while working on a board. I think that's really, really important. Enjoy other people, get on with them, learn from them. Um, so that, that's that been one criteria. And the absolute criteria has always been, I'm trying to do something about climate change, um, full stop. Of course. So did, did you go to COP26, Julia? And if so, did you go as part of, of good or as a free agent or as part of one of these other organisations you're supporting? So, so I, I did go to COP26 um, and it was a it was it was a mixed it was a bittersweet experience, to be honest. Um, so I went as part of the good team to present um, the piece of work that I did before I left, which was something called Renewable Nation, uh, which looked at um, if the UK wanted to be 100% renewable, what would that look like? And what would you need to believe? And what 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 other policies, what outline policies would you need in place? And so we presented that at COP and had a fantastic session, actually, with, um, I think it was Scottish Power Renewables, um, with RES, um, with Energy UK and Good Energy, which I hosted and, and chaired. Um, and then we then I did a couple of other things. Uh, one with um, Zenobi, the storage company, um, and then uh, Make My Money Matter, the pensions piece. So I kind of did a few things with good, and then I, I sort of went and did a bunch of meetings. Um, and what I found was actually just walking down the street, you bumped into a lot of people. It, it became quite a small city centre in a sense. Um, but I thought... I thought that the the feeling for me was that there is an awful lot of work to do. There's an awful lot of voices here who are keen to make things happen. But wow, we've got a lot of work to do. And it's going to come down to business is going to be a core piece of that delivery. And slightly feeling a bit of the weight of the world on my shoulders when I left. Not that I obviously have to do it all myself, but but being responsible for being one of those people to really make it happen is how I felt when I left COP26. It, it definitely was like a whirlwind and like a bubble and yeah you couldn't get five minutes without bumping into, yeah. into someone you, you knew so it was a, always a case of walk and talk with someone which was really nice um, in a way and I wanted to come back to something you said there about having so much work to do and we're obviously aware of how much there is to do in terms of tackling the climate crisis and decarbonising um, energy but you also mentioned that some businesses that you're helping now are you said going through the same stages um, as what you went to through with with good and this was a company set up in the 1990s um, and I'm sure it will have been a super different landscape in in clean energy 
terms then but as this is an international women's day episode i also wanted to touch on how i'm sure it was a completely different business um atmosphere in terms of women in boardrooms particularly in boardrooms at companies relating to stem um, yeah. sectors so what what has changed for the better let's let's start with a bit of positivity seeing as you talked about the weight of the world um <laughs> just then let's start with a bit of positivity and what, what's come on in both of those regards since so then I, so i think i mean what was very interesting about setting up good was that in a sense when i set up good obviously i didn't go through the experience of other people's boardrooms very much at the time because I was setting it up and and we had some German entrepreneurs but they had a couple of women on their board in Germany as well so it, it didn't feel like an all-male environment initially it wasn't until I started going along to some of the industry meetings when I'd meet the rest of the CEOs that that was a bit of a shock when when you kind of sat in a room and you seriously were the only female voice pretty much most of the time and that was surprising and slightly nerve-wracking and slightly odd because I think I was probably a bit younger than all of them as well or if nothing else I probably looked a bit younger than them and um, that felt you felt that not only were you a woman but you were also younger and you were trying to do things in a different way and you you did feel that everybody just thought you were kind of irrelevant um, so that was really hard, I think. Um, I think where it's changed today is that I don't I think we've seen lots of female entrepreneurs come into this space. So whether it's Solivus and, and Joe coming in there or whether it's um, Ripple Energy, there's 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 more women sort of just generally part of the industry. Um, and I don't think it's surprising to hear a female voice challenge people or try and do things in a different way I also think the whole industry recognizes it has to transition now so this is not one single voice saying we should do more renewables this is um this is everybody get, scratching their heads trying to work out how we do more renewables and I think that's that is the massive shift and and to be honest if you talk to me about five six years ago I didn't feel that massive shift then it, it, it was moving but and it, there was some traction gaining but not not nothing like we're seeing today. No I find it interesting what you said about how like gender balance is more pronounced in challengers and innovators because I was doing my notes for this episode and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing the company um, wrong I found an article about is it a trato? A trato? Yes. Atrato, um, yeah, Atrato yeah, on-site energy, um, yeah. and how essentially you're one of the board members, but all of the other board members are women as well. Yeah, um, and it's actually the yeah, it's actually the first company with an all-female board to be on the London Stock Exchange, which I just found really interesting, and like you said, something that we probably wouldn't have seen five or six years ago. No, no. And I think and, and, and what was really interesting about because we got challenged quite hard on was this was this a setup where we trying to do this specifically? And the answer was actually um, I'd been talking to a charter for quite some time since I left good about sort of chairing the board and taking it forward. And the other two um, sort of board members fitted the bill. I mean, they were what we needed to launch that investment trust. Um, and I think it showed that, well, I don't, I don't know whether it was the all-female board, the proposition, the team, I think it was a combination of everything, is that we raised 
significant amounts of money and we were over raised by at least double, maybe triple the amount we wanted to raise. So um, it was definitely of interest to the market. And I and I would I would hope that we see more coming to market because it's it's quite classic that you see a lot of entrepreneurs with all male boards and partially because they're sort of either in high tech or sort of it, it's just an area where that they've all got involved. And I, I do think having more having more diversity on boards is super important. More diversity in senior management team is really important as well, but particularly on boards because it brings a different set of challenges to the senior exec team and a challenges and support because that's your role. Your role is to hold to account, to challenge and to support the senior team to help them achieve the goals um, and the, the outcomes of the business that they're aiming to do. And I think if they're all coming from a particular mindset, that becomes really hard to do. I, I was thinking actually, so so I bike when I'm in London. I'm very lucky I have a bicycle um, that I leave at Paddington Station when I get the train. And um, one of the things about biking in London is that you spend your life um, looking for the van that might be pull out or the bus in front of you or whatever it is. And um, but also the opportunity of sort of being able to cut through and, and, and get to the lights quicker than everybody else. And I think to me, um, running a running a startup or, or a growth business is a little bit like that. Um, your job on the board is to be watching out, helping the CEO and the senior management team to look out for the risks for the yellow van, as I call it, because that's what it was the other day that pulled out in front of me. Looking out for the yellow van that's going to pull out that you have no control over, but you need to be aware of because they can derail you. Um, to be keeping sort of pace and making sure that you're keeping up um, and hitting your KPIs and then looking for the opportunities. And I think um, the more people looking looking at this from more 360 degrees, the more important it is. And yeah, if I had a pound for every time I heard about the importance of agility, especially at the moment with the low carbon transition and with the pandemic um, in mind, then yeah, maybe I could set up my own <laughs> challenger, <laughs> challenger brand. So I'm sure you're not not the only one thinking that way, but the cycle analogy is really fun and it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to come on to as as well what advice you would give. You mentioned that it's different now, but at one point you weren't only the only woman in the room, but you were perhaps the youngest um, in the room. And perhaps we'll have people listening that might be in that that position now. I know we have a lot of listeners who are either studying or in their first job or just looking to get into their first job or maybe doing a career change because they'd like a green job. Um, so what learnings and advice would you give to women that are in clean energy or climate related roles at, at, at the moment with, with that landscape in mind? So I really think um, that, I mean, this goes for anybody, but but um, I think particularly what's interesting, uh, is there was a piece of work that was done on uh, sort of the, the way women are influenced in terms of the way they speak or how they present themselves. And if you go to an event and the first person who stands up at that event and asks a question is a woman, you get you're far more likely to have more women stand up and ask questions. So if you are confident as a woman, then do stand up in events and ask questions because it means they'll be you'll make space for other women behind you. Uh, but I would definitely recommend that is that if you have something to say as a woman, make sure you say it because it might feel nerve wracking. It might feel somebody might try and put you down. But if you've got something decent to say, you you need to say it. 
Um, and that's really important. And to a certain extent, it's about stepping up and working out how to become resilient. If people try and negate your point or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the key point is to be heard and to be listened to. And the more you practice that, the more easy, the easier it becomes. Um, so that would be an initial part in terms of what you want to do. And then I think um, in terms of figuring out what you want to do, uh, I always think go to the place. There's two places you should look at is what do you love and what are you good at? Um, and if you can combine those two, you become very powerful because you you end up loving what you're doing. So and and if you're good at it, you then become really good at it and you can make a massive difference by following those two kind of key rules. Yeah, I'm sure we've all seen the Venn diagram, isn't it? The, the thing of purpose and it's three circles and they're what am I good at? What do I love and what could actually make me some money? Because, yeah, I love eating cheese and crackers and I'm very good <laughs> at it. But sadly, I don't think I'll be made um, yeah. Yeah. To, to do it. Sustainability journalism is far more easy to um, to find work work in. Um, and I, I think as well, when you're looking for you what do you love? As you, taster. Sorry. <laughs> You could become a cheese taster, maybe. I could. I feel like as well, there might be an ageism element <laughs> there. I don't think I've seen a food critic or taster that's my my age. But if anyone's listening, please do get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think as well that overlap, as you mentioned, there's so much more challenging and innovating going on. And there are new roles springing up that maybe there'll be more within that Venn diagram, if if you look. So Edie's been going as well, like good since since the 90s. And at that point, I don't think any business would maybe have a, a well, you might have a carbon reporter, um, but would you have a carbon analyst or a product strategy analysis for plant-based food? Probably um, not. So there's more opportunities coming up is something that I'd say that would be a good. And also you can create opportunities if you I mean what I, I mean for something like journalism or something like communications if you have things you want to talk about write a blog create a blog do your own thing to start with because one it gives you practice in terms of putting your ideas out there I, I always I always believe quite often um, when you want to do something or you're thinking about something you want to create something you can get stuck in your head too much and um, the the thing about social media, the thing about the world we live in, is you can start on a really easily, the, the the entry place to start writing your thoughts down is really low. And then you can get feedback and you see whether, um, test some of your theories. Always when you stand up and get state something, always see it as like an experiment. You're you're kind of, you're, you've got a piece of data, you're throwing it out there, see whether people agree with you or not. I'm definitely seeing more people come into this career through yeah not having a energy or economics or engineering yeah. degree because companies also need procurement specialists that are good at this communication specialists that are good at this so lots of opportunities to as you say carve out a space for yourself and then hopefully as you say that encourages others to do the same yeah. um, so I think that's a really nice note to end on I feel like we started it a bit on a bit of a, a low note with the challenges of making a big choice and the feeling of responsibility after COP. So it's it's been great to have, have chatted with you today, Juliet. That's lovely. It's really lovely to chat to you as well. And it kind of make, takes me back to the beginning of my career where do you kind of go, oh, what are we doing? What am I doing? But but actually just take a first step is always important. And once you take the first step, the second one becomes easier.
Yes, a big thank you once more to Juliet for her time and for her insight. And I think that raises a really interesting question of whether it's easier to be a professional woman in a challenger role, so maybe a startup, something newer, innovative, or to try and drive change from within an incumbent. I've been sitting and pondering this and I don't know if I have an answer. Would you have one, Ruth? It would really vary company to company, I'd say. Definitely. Um, it's a super interesting question and one that we can keep discussing with our next interviewee. So we're moving on from someone who first started their work challenging within energy in the 1990s to someone who has been doing this for less than six years. Our next guest is Christina Rabicate, the founder of Papaya. This is a platform that enables power purchase agreements, PPAs, for renewable energy. Christina is in her 20s and has built from scratch her team and this digital platform that matches renewable energy generators with the big suppliers and in turn clients. She does a better job of explaining this than I do in our discussion and we also get time to talk about things like policy support for renewables and clean tech skills, especially for women. So let's play that talk in full. Yes, hello Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast today. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. And I know, Christina, you just said off call that you were at the gym very early this morning. So <laughs> thank you for saving the energy to come on here because, yeah, I admire that. I don't know if I could do that. I do my best. <laughs> great. Well, yeah, great to have you on. Great to hear from, from you. And I don't think you've been on the podcast before. Um, so I would love to start with really an, an introduction for my benefit and for people that are listening that maybe aren't familiar with yourself um, or with Papaya. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the company and what motivated you to set it up? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in industry for the last six or seven years, uh, so straight after I graduated um, and I've been working in the PPA space um all that time so that's my sort of bread and butter um and um papaya so um obviously um working in the industry and experiencing you know step by step execution processes and um all the other um steps involved in getting a ppa over the line you sort of start to see the gaps in the market and in the processes so papaya was sort of born uh, for me, um, executing hundreds of PPAs manually and then realizing that, you know, something has to be done. It can be done better. Uh, so Papaya is a um, technology platform that facilitates execution of PPAs between um, energy buyers and sellers. So, for example, if you've got a wind turbine and you would like to hold a competitive tender for your PPA, you come on Papaya's platform, publish your information, set yourself a target price, and then uh, um, all suppliers, um, both of medium and, and large size, depending what who you choose, uh, come to compete uh, to win, uh, win your renewable volume. So, yeah, that's um, a little summary of um, myself and uh, where this idea was born. No, it's super exciting. And I understand it's a fairly young company, right? You've been doing this for less than two years. Oh, yes. Um, so we've started building the platform in uh, February 2021 and then launched later that year in July. So um, we've been operating for about seven months now and uh, it feels like a lot longer, but actually it's only been seven months. Mm. Well, I find that with COVID, time is really a construct, isn't it? It can feel so long or it can 
can just fly by, but obviously a really exciting moment to be launching um, ahead of COP26 and seeing so much more news about um, renewables as well in general. I understand that you're coming at this from a little bit of a different angle than what we do at ED. So we've just actually put out a guide to PPAs for energy end users. So as in, if you've got a business and you're looking to meet your um, energy needs with renewables, what you're what you're doing. Um, I understand you're working more on the other side of that of that process. Um, and and you mentioned that working in this space for a few years, you get a good view of where the gaps are. Um, so I wanted to get your opinion on what the remaining barriers are for businesses looking to enter the UK's renewables market with context of national policy and infrastructure in mind. So in the UK, we obviously have a net zero target and as renewables have been scaling up, subsidies have been taken away um, as well. So, yeah, what's it like in the market at the, at the moment and what are the big challenges? So um, spot on about the subsidies, I think, um, you know, that is the biggest barrier to entry and build new renewable sites in the country. Um, so when we had uh, fits and rock in, rocks in place, um, any size generator um, could put a wind turbine or a solar panel on their roofs because um, there was definitely enough incentive that was long enough to make sure that their investment uh, pays uh, back for itself. So now it's not the case at all. The only um, thing that sort of supported renewables in the last uh, year and a bit uh, was the fact that market prices have gone through the roof. So um, actually uh, the power prices are high enough right now to actually build renewables without subsidies in place. Um, but the problem is, is that it's, it's very volatile um, and it's not guaranteed long term. So majority of the volatility sits in short term markets, um, which is probably good enough to kick off uh, the project, but it will not guarantee that um, it can survive um, over a long period of time if um, the market conditions, uh, the gas situation and um, every rest of all the political issues that we're seeing right now uh, change. So these are the biggest barriers um, and other sort of smaller barriers um, are um, just um, in general, I think if you've got a smaller um, site in mind, um, that is almost impossible to build right now um, at all because um, only large sites uh, with economies of scale um, actually manage uh, to, to get projects off, off the ground without subsidies in place. But uh, the days of sort of 500 kilowatt wind sites um, or, you know, something around that um, figure um, are over unless there's um, we we see some additional government support or the prices just uh, continue to to rise. What I'm trying to say that the marginal costs uh, for small and large uh, generation are very different. So um, although some of the projects uh, like transmission connected may be offshore uh, can work for these current prices, the smaller guys can't. Uh, so um, that's something that needs to be addressed um, if we want to encourage more um, entrepreneurs to enter this market. Mm, I, I get why this has happened. So it's essentially that we've got big targets and bigger projects obviously mean that you that you meet them quicker. But yeah, that does pose a lot of challenges and not big projects aren't going to be suitable for everywhere and everyone. So thank you for that overview of some of the policy and infrastructure issues that are, that are going on there. And another thing that we're seeing in terms of barriers and opportunities raised in the news a lot, especially given, as you've mentioned, the energy crisis and the net zero target 
um, is is skills. Um, and you mentioned that you've been working in in the energy sector for more than five years in the UK on that sort of tech um, innovation side of side of things. So I wanted to get your views on advice on on working in that sector. So what it's like to to work in that space and, and try to progress with with that context in mind. So um, it's interesting because um, when I was sort of at school or university, energy sector was not really um, something that was talked about and it, it wasn't um, an obvious sector that um, myself heard of um, as a sort of potential job opportunity which um, you know I've sort of almost accidentally landed a job at a startup called Lime Jump um, and that's where I realized how exciting and fascinating um, energy and electricity markets are um, so I think starting sort of from uh, sort of the early days at sort of university and general education there's not much introduction wasn't when I was growing up uh, 10 15 years ago um, so everything that I've learned I had to learn by doing just uh, getting a job and being exposed uh, to various deals that um, various PPAs and um, there's obviously courses available um, that um, you get into via a company and and just learn generally from people that have been in industry for for uh, long periods of time. Uh, but I think there should definitely be more easily accessible information so young people can, you know, view um, energy sector as something that they, you know, would wish to pursue as a career and have information available where they can uh, really grow their knowledge and skills before um, they um, even enter the sector. And sorry, did you go to school in the UK and university in the UK? Yes, I did. I did. Well, I've um, I came to uh, the UK when I was 15. So I did my uh, GCSEs, uh, A-levels and university here. Mm -hmm. Got it. I just wanted to make sure. And then at the moment, there is a new bill going through about changing education in that respect. So that was put forward at at COP26, um, but MPs sort of wrote to the education department saying, how are you going to implement this? And there wasn't a lot more information. So I don't know um, how much has, has changed. I was probably studying around um, the same time as you, and there definitely wasn't a lot of highlighting, I, I don't think. And I went to an all-girls school and didn't take things like um, additional maths and triple science. So that definitely wasn't sold to me. Yeah. I think the only thing that was helpful um, for me in sort of my education is the fact that I've studied economics. So mm -hmm. it sort of was very easily uh, applicable uh, to obviously the energy sector. Um, but really all the stuff, there's so much to it. And it's I find it absolutely unbelievable how little uh, we get exposed to it at school, because um, obviously we get study sort of uh, finance, we get exposure to sort of more like legal and that sort of the obvious career choices um, but um, hopefully now sort of uh, electric cars and electric vehicles uh, charging points and batteries that should um, become more of a subject and a, a point of discussion um, all around. I was going to ask you what needs to be done to grow the skills base for clean energy in the UK but you've mentioned there's some important things so starting at the education level and improving communications but is there any, anything else that, that you reckon would form part of that puzzle? I think um, it's important that um, you you know as I mentioned you start early uh, so there's awareness but also um, 
market changes really, really quickly. Um, so since I joined, um, so many things have come to life and then died off again, especially in sort of the, the battery sector and um, things are changing really, really quickly. So I think it's very important. So just because you've been in the market for 20 years doesn't mean that you know more than somebody that's been in the market for 10 years. Uh, just because um, every year it's almost everything is almost new again. Mm. Everything changes so quickly. So I think people that um, are in, you know, um, top positions, maybe most of on the on the policy and the government side, um, I think it's very important that they keep up to date so um, they're aware of what exact policies and changes we need in place in order to um, sort of uh, keep the country running and avoiding crisis in the future. So it's not just a gap in sort of the young um, people's space, but also um, uh, for those that have been in the market for a long time and maybe um, mm. aren't exposed to day-to-day -day changes as much as sort of um, everybody else. I think the government have called it lifelong learning. That's something that I've I've seen. And then obviously, amid COVID, we keep hearing, well, if you're in business management or policy and you're not willing to adapt and learn and maybe do things differently, it's just not going to work in this this sort of era that we're in. No, you absolutely cannot set policies or implement new policies Um if you do not understand the exact step-by-step -step process that people in the market go through daily, because that's where the crisis is born. Uh, you know, where there's, um, I don't want to obviously um, go in too much detail, but you know, you sort of start to put uh, caps in place that do not make sense for, you know, 70% of the market um, and, um, you know, various similar examples like that. So I think, um, yeah, that's where I'm still heading. Of course. Well, obviously, wish you best of luck with that. Um, and I'd love to stay and chat about this this longer. I feel like given the energy price crisis, we probably could stay and talk um, <laughs> all day. But I think that's about all the time we have for this part of the podcast. So thank you so much, Christina, for your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. Huge thank you once again to Christina for her interview. We're shortly going to have a quick break before our third and final speaker partly so that Ruth and I can get a coffee, maybe we can solve today's wordle, maybe you'd also like to do the same. But before I do, I just wanted to flag that we have recently actually published a business guide to PPAs on ED in partnership with EDF, tying nicely in with Christina's discussion. This is a free-to-download guide answering all your PPA FAQs. This is a tongue twister, <laughs> I shouldn't have written that down. Um, and you can find that guide at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net forward slash downloads. So Ruth and I are going to take a very quick break. Join us in part two for our third and final guest interview. And welcome back to part two of this Sustainable Business Covered podcast episode, our International Women's Day 2022 special. If you've been listening to part one, you'll know that I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah, and that I've booted Edie's content director, Luke, and content editor, Matt, out of the studio to mark the occasion um, and to make way for Ruth, who is Utility Week's water correspondent. Welcome back, Ruth. Thanks, Sarah. But if you've not been listening to part one, we suggest you go back because you've just missed two cracking interviews. 
Um, and we're about to have another, if I do say so myself. Um, but Ruth, before we come on to this, I realise we haven't talked about um, what other contents our brands are putting together to mark um, International Women's Day 2022. So I guess I'll start with you guys. I know you've got some um, great stuff up on the website already because it's just been International Women in Engineering Day. Um, yes, so it was International Women in Engineering Day in February. Um, so we, uh, we we covered that with some... Um, articles about um, women in leadership roles in the utility sector, um, which there's been a fall on year on year, um, according to energy and utility skills. Um, but but there is a huge skills gap in the energy sector, mm. uh, especially if we want to achieve um, net zero. Uh, there's going to have to be, I think, 400,000 green jobs created to deliver net zero in the energy industry. Um, so uh, women in energy is not a topic that we can only look at in March. It's something that we are looking at throughout the year. Of course, and yeah, obviously we'll be following what you do um, throughout the year and recapping on some of the stuff you've done for International Women in Engineering um, Day. And I understand that some of the stuff you did for that occasion um, is actually with our next guest. Um, so I wanted to come yes. on to our last interview for this episode and I was going to come up with something flashy here and say we were moving on from two innovators, challengers or changemakers to some other different type of person. Um, but I think that Cordy O'Hara also fits all of these descriptions. Uh, Cordy, also guest blogger for Utility Week, is usually the president of National Grid Ventures and she has more than 20 years of experience in the energy industry, having worked in various roles in the UK and US. So she's overseen strategy, planning and operation of all manner of large-scale energy assets, including distribution infrastructure, electricity interconnectors and onshore wind farms and solar farms. In our discussion, we can dive a little bit more into depth around the energy transition into those technologies. Um, and Cordy can also give her views on why we need a diverse workforce to deliver net zero, as Ruth mentioned. So let's get to that discussion with Cordy now. Yes, good afternoon, Cordy. It's great to have you on our podcast for International Women's Day. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Sarah, and really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. No, thank you for taking the time. I understand that you have a super busy schedule, as you would um, in your role, so thank you for the for the time. Um, whereabouts are you calling in from today? So today I'm actually, it's a rare day working from home. I live just outside Beaconsfield, um, but excited to be back with colleagues in the office in the Strand tomorrow. Great. Well, obviously, best of luck for yeah returning to the London um, office. I was back in London um, at the weekend and yeah, definitely busier than it has been, even though I went in on a day when it was pouring down with rain. <laughs> no, it's great to see everything come back to life and um, for businesses to be back together and teams um, working together. So, yeah, very much excited about this. Great. Well, enjoy your time in this week. Um, and yeah, in the meantime, let's just dive right into the podcast and we can cover um, we can cover some topics relating to the energy transition um, and to the role of women in delivering that energy transition. But I feel like it, it's probably worth starting um, with an introduction to National Grid Ventures, because maybe we have listeners that are aware of National Grid's core work, um, but aren't so familiar with with the ventures side. So I think a quick introduction would be great, please. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do so. So I'm president of National Grid Ventures and we are the unregulated arm of National Grid. So we focus on investing in clean energy technologies that help the 
transition to net zero and maybe just to bring it to life I'll give you a couple of examples so here in the UK we recently launched the world's longest subsea electricity interconnector between the UK and Norway and that allows us to directly share renewable energy resources between countries uh, we're building our um, our next one uh, to Denmark um, at this moment in time we're also investing in the UK in carbon capture and storage infrastructure uh, and that will help decarbonize industry in the Humber and Teesside region, creating new green jobs in the region. We've also got um, important activities in the US. Uh, we own and operate large scale wind and solar generation assets. And we're also um, building transmission infrastructure to help enable uh, other renewable resources to be transported around New York. And then finally, we've got a number of partnerships in place for other clean technologies. So recently, um, an offshore wind joint venture in the US, uh, partnerships for battery storage, and now exploring the role of hydrogen. Great, and that's all such interesting stuff and definitely stuff that we cover um, a lot in what, what we've been doing. But And you mentioned that there's work in the UK and US, and you just mentioned before we started recording that you've actually been in roles in the US um, for a number of years. So it's great to be able to have some time with someone who's been able to watch at this distance, at this two national levels, really, um, yeah. how things have changed in terms of green policy and tech scaling up um, for, for several years now. So I w wanted to get your view on what, what that has been like to work through. I mean, I'm someone that just gets the, the headlines, really. I'm not on the front lines of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's been a real privilege, actually, and, and it's been an incredible journey with the opportunity to help shape the future energy system at a time of great need and now tremendous urgency. And the challenge, you know, as I've sat in the UK role or in the US role, is, is, is really simple and the same, which is every country, every government, um, every industry participant, and each of us as individuals are going to need to work together to cut the, car the carbon that we produce. And if we don't, um, we um, will put the planet in jeopardy. So we have a tremendous purpose in the role that we can play as we look forward. And to achieve net zero by 2050, we're going to have to completely redesign and rebuild our energy system. It needs to be smarter, more flexible, and still, you know, give us the reliability, resilience that we um, we um, expect and deserve every single day. Um, and so my team and I, when we talk about it, it's like redesigning and rebuilding a car whilst you're still trying to drive it. Um, so it's a tremendous set of opportunities and also uh, a set of challenges as we work through how to do that. But really what's been very positive on the journey is that the ambition has been set uh, by, by government, by policies and, and real targets that we've got to meet. And when I look at where National Grid operates, we've already got net zero legislation here in place in the UK, as well as in New York and Massachusetts. And we're already on the journey. We're not starting here from scratch. And a tremendous amount of good work has already been done to decarbonise the power sector. And I think, you know, the UK has been a leader there. Um, and, and now we've got to look at all of the various sectors and, and how to meet the targets. Um, and it's a, a time now of, of for pace and for scaling up of action. Uh, and I'm excited by that. Um, and we've set, been set some really ambitious goals. If you look at how much more 
offshore wind, for example, is going to be built in the UK, 40 gigawatts now by 2030. Um, um, and so action um, is going to be essential. Um, we've got less than a decade to deliver five times the amount of offshore wind that the UK and the EU has, EU has deployed in the last 30 years. Um, so big opportunity, uh, big challenge. And um, as we think about it as a team here at National Grid, we think there's a few criteria that needs to be met um, in order to be successful. So we really see a role for even more collaboration between the government, regulators, ourselves as industry participants to set the right frameworks, to get the right level of investment. Um, you know, these energy systems are converging now offshore and onshore, so we need even more coordination uh, between infrastructure um, and, and then make sure that we can deliver these, you know, increased renewable assets um, and then enable the electrification and decarbonisation of heat and transport. And we're going to need more education for consumers. Um, how they can get involved, how they may need to change the way they consume energy. Um, so lots to do, um, but but we're starting from a very strong pray, uh, place. And we, we've said 2030, which is the next set of targets for the UK, just really starts today because of the scale um, of, of what we've got to deliver. Yes, Cordy, obviously a massive to-do list. And you mentioned the 2030 targets, but obviously last year as well, the government had a new 2035 target on decarbonising um, electricity. So we're still waiting for more frameworks on that one as as well. So even more puzzle pieces, even more coordination, even more um, investment will be coming from that, I'm sure. Um, and you mentioned in that as well, the importance of education from a consumer um, standpoint. But for this episode today, we're really looking at education and skills as well in terms of people um, working um, in in the sector. And obviously here in the UK, we have a target for two million people in green collar jobs by 2030. Um, and obviously we can't have every single one of those two million people being male. Um, so for International Women's Day, obviously something that's often discussed is diversity in this sector, in utilities and energy and in green jobs um, more broadly and how we can't get to net zero without diverse talent. So I wanted to get your views um, on that today. Where is progress being made to increase diversity that is good? Um, what needs to happen um, a little bit more quickly? And why is this so important to the net zero agenda? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it really well, Sarah, you know, delivering net zero is going to require tremendous collaboration, complex problem solving, completely different level of external engagement, lots of innovation. And so it's going to be crucial to the energy industry that we've got the right mix of perspectives, mindsets um, to really leverage the opportunities and overcome the challenges along the way. Um, and, you know, I don't believe that we can continue to innovate and find those solutions if we've got a workforce that's made up of the individuals who think the same or from the same backgrounds, who have the same experiences. Um, and women are going to have a tremendous role to play in, in this next phase of the transition, bringing unique perspectives and approaches to what has been traditionally male dominated teams in, in the industry. What I was really encouraged was uh, about was National Grid's recent research that shows 83% of women want to help the UK reach its net zero target. So we've got this willing 
audience and now we've got to create the pathways um, uh, and um, generate even greater interest levels into our sector and a career in engineering uh, represents a huge opportunity uh, for them to do so. Um, I, I do think things are moving in the right directions. There's a lot more in, women in the industry from when I started back in the 90s. And so we are seeing more women and young female talent joining the sector. But it's very clear to me that we need to continue ramping up our efforts. And, you know, for me, establishing firm commitments as an industry uh, and in our individual companies and living up to them is going to be key. I do want to say I'm very proud of our focus here at National Grid. Um, we've really started focusing a lot more on uh, our hiring processes, um, promoting female talent up and through the organisation. Um, almost four of 10 graduate hires now at International Grid are women. Um, each year we're seeing a year on year increase in women in leadership roles. And I was really pleased to see that almost a third of senior roles in the UK are now held by women. But I think setting the targets and being public about that um, and demonstrating commitment is this sort of next phase. So uh, in our responsible business charter that we launched last year, we've made even firmer commitments now to 2025. So achieve 50 percent diversity in our senior leadership group achieve 50% diversity in all of our new talent programmes by 2025. Um, and we're going to do that in a very transparent way. So we've also committed to reporting on progress on recruitment, promotion, progression, um, at lever rate. So um, I think there's always a lot more to do, but we've definitely got a purpose as a, an industry that will attract more women now. And it's up to the industry and, and individual companies to set the tone and to set the targets. Of course, I mean, 83% there that you said as a stat, that made me write it down. Yeah. I thought that's such a considerable um, majority and that is really promising, isn't it, that the demand is there? Absolutely. And with all of that in mind, I wanted to get your advice for women who are considering joining the um, the energy sector at, at the moment, um, beyond obviously choosing somewhere to work that does have strong um, strong commitments in this field that you can measure. So, for example, 50% by X date rather than just, oh, we'll, we'll have more women, we'll increase yeah. <laughs> the proportion of women, we'll support women. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what we're trying to do as an organisation is generate excitement and interest in the energy sector. And it is a really great time to join um, as we go through this clean energy transition. And so we've, we, we're out there in the schools, with the universities. Um, and I think it is a big responsibility to sort of showcase um, what an exciting career you can have in the energy sector. And then alongside that, um, you know, my advice is for, we, we've got to come into this um, with very open minds about what is an engineering job? What, what could a role, uh, what role could I do in helping deliver the energy transition? And it, I think it's quite easy to um, assume certain stereotypes, get have misconceptions about uh, what is an engineering role uh, like that might look like in the future. So I'm sort of actively encouraging women to, you know, really explore, get get into some of the details 
around what 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 these organizations are doing uh, uh you know get to speak to them at career fairs um actually we we really encourage women to go and reach out get first-hand insight from industry participants about what the opportunities are so that you can um, actually be as expansive in your thinking as possible about the role uh, you could have and and with that we will do our best as an organization to to lay out career paths and um, to showcase some of the exciting work and opportunity I think that phrase that you used, yeah, expansive thinking about roles is something we're going to be seeing um, a lot. As you mentioned, the scale of the transition is unprecedented. The need for collaboration is unprecedented and therefore um, roles and skills will be different. So, yeah, I'll keep that in mind when I'm doing future content on this. Um, Cordy, I think that's all the time we have for the call today. I appreciate that you're super busy um, at, at the moment and our team is as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and I hope you have a great International Women's Day when it comes. Thank you, Sarah. We're really looking forward to um, celebrating it and um, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today. Cordy was our yeah last but by no means least guest for this episode. So I hope you'll join me in listening and thanking her for her time. So that's our last interview for the day, but I hope you're all feeling energised and inspired ahead of International Women's Day, um, and especially after what has undeniably been an emotionally trying week in terms of national and international um, news. So we're going to be wrapping up now and perhaps having some more comfort chocolate. Um, Ruth, have you enjoyed being on your first podcast? I really have, Sarah. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for popping on. Um, and before we sign off, this is the part where we do all the ad mini bits of the podcast, really. So I'd be glad if you could tell the readers how they can access Utility Week's content. Uh, go to utilityweek.co.uk. Very simple. Very simple. <laughs> um, unlike Edie, these guys also have a print edition as well. We do. We have a once a month print edition for subscribers. So if you'd like to get a copy, uh, go on to utilityweek.co.uk and subscribe. Um, and as for us here at Edie, you can recap on all previous episodes of this podcast and subscribe to make sure that you never miss another one going forward on our SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. And you can find all of our other content on ed.net. Um, including something that's already up for International Women's Day, and that is a blog from the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planets, Managing Director of Demand Enterprise, Suman Surabashu. We'll be back with another episode of Sustainable Business Covered next Friday, actually, so that's 11th of March. Normally it's bi-weekly, but we will be bringing you a special edition live from our Sustainability Leaders Forum in London. Um, our biggest annual event is back face-to-face for 2022 and we're expecting to welcome more than 60 speakers and 500 other attendees to London's Business Design Centre on March the 8th and the 9th. We are, as we speak, in the final preparation um, for this event, which is two days of thought-provoking talks, workshops and your chance to meet corporate leaders, sustainability experts, government reps, investors and NGOs. So if you'd like to join us there or check out the full agenda, you can visit the event website at event.ed.net forward slash forum. That's event.ed.net forward slash forum. So I hope to see you there. And there are also some digital tickets on sale if you can't make it to London for those days. But for today, it is now a goodbye from us here in the studio. So it's a goodbye from Ruth. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.